Hi, Matt. It's uh, Keith Bose here from Lotus Resources. We have the Kalakera Uranium Project, which is located in uh, Malawi. We're very, very happy to be able to uh, speak to the market now. We've just recently released our feasibility study, in which I think we've made or managed to hit all of the targets that we've been talking about for the last uh, couple of months. So really, really happy with the results that have come out from that. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I thought most people were fearful of actually, you know, advancing any of these studies in this inflationary environment. You know, we, we've seen costs rise 40, 50, in one case, 60% from feasibility study through to uh, definitive. Um, were you a little bit nervous about that? A little bit nervous about it, but I think as we've spoken about previously, we did recognize when we look at things like our capital costs, we're not exposed to purchasing of a lot of new equipment. Uh, most of our capital costs are associated with fixing things up. So it's labor costs associated with fixing up corrosion issues, fixing up concrete works, civil works, and all that kind of stuff, which is much more labor intensive and use a lot of Malawian labor, which hasn't seen that inflation stuff though. So a little bit nervous about it, but really happy with the way it's come in. The one area that maybe has been impacted by it is our reagents. We have seen a significant increase in the cost of our reagents. But not only that, we've also seen now that the logistics issues that we're facing have meant that our first fills and the inventories that we need to carry on site are a lot higher than what we initially thought we'd have to carry. It's interesting. I think people are trying to work out whether that's just price gouging or is it a genuine knock-on effect from supply chain issues? Subject for another day, and maybe one of the panel panel shows that you, you frequent with us. Um, let's just remind people what the actual number, the DFS throughout for you in terms of the numbers. Yeah, sure. So our DFS, we're pro, as we've said, quick restart. We're talking about 15 months from when we make our final investment decision to when first production comes out. And probably a couple of months after that, we'll be able to ship our first product out to our customers. So quick restart. We're talking about low capital. We've validated or confirmed the 50 million US dollars for the refurbishment, but we've added on an additional 38 million dollars now for all the things that we've been talking about, like ore sorting, connecting to the grid, acid recovery, and all those things. So total upfront capital, $88 million at the moment. Okay, And most importantly, I think for us is the way we've been able to manage the ore sorting and the various resources. We've managed to get our cash costs down below $30 per pound, which really was a key number for us uh, moving forward. So 10-year life of mine, producing almost 20 million pounds during that period, an average of 2.4 to 2.5 million pounds for the first seven years and dropping off as we treat our stockpiles at the back end of the schedule. Right. So this, I mean, C1 cost down to under, under 30 is, is a biggie. Well, it's a biggie in the context that most people talk about, are oh, these African low-grade uranium projects never going to make money? But that tells a different story. It does, yeah. And I think one of the things that we've been able to do, we've always said that Calakera, okay, I agree that when you look at things like some of the Canadian assets and all that kind of stuff where they're talking thousands and thousands of PPM, but Calakera's grade, our mine grade that we're taking out is 600 PPM, right? So that's not low grade, I don't think, in anyone's world. And then we apply the ore sorting concept to that as well. And we're able to take our average grade that we feed to the plant from 600 up to 800 ppm. And it's that 800 ppm that's allowed us to maintain the 2.4, 2.5 million pounds per annum of production. Right. Okay. But um, where, where, does, where do you feel this sets? Because I mean, 10 year life of mine, it's good. It's, you know, the, I think bare minimum for bankers to get comfortable. Um, but. With, with regards to you know two point four million pounds a year, is that is that big? I mean, where where would you put yourself? Yeah, I think it's a really good size. I think if you have a look at what everyone else is trying to do out there at the moment, I mean, there's a lot of projects here in uh, Australia where they're talking the two to three million pound per annum seems to be the average. 
you go back into uh, Namibia, um, Langer Heinrichs a little bit bigger than us and perhaps some of the other ones out there, but then you move into the US, the US is talking one to two million pounds per annum seems to be their average size as well. So I think we're well in the game with 2.4, 2.5 million pounds per annum. I think that's a really attractive number and hopefully the utilities will recognise it as we go into further negotiations with them. Well, yeah, well, I do want to get into um, that in a second, but um, I guess the whole thing with a DFS is great, all that hard work, and you will get no credit for it because they want to know what's happening next. So, what does it mean? You, you, you've got you've got it lined up. The numbers look good, but so what? I think I mean this is really a stepping stone for us. We recognise we need to get this out to the market. We need to show to the market that at a feasibility study level, we've got a capital cost number that is low. We've got an operating cost number that I think is really good. It probably sits within easily within the second quartile of the cost producers at the moment. So, really good position to be in from that. But I agree with you 100% is what's next. And really what's next for us is going out to the utilities. We were at the conference in Montreal a few weeks ago, meeting a number of the North American utilities, speaking to them. They wanted to see the feasibility study. They wanted to know what the numbers were and all that. So we've certainly been able to circulate back to them with our new DFS study. We're off to London at the end of the month. We're going to the World Nuclear Association conference. We've got plans there to meet a number of the European utilities and also some of the Asian utilities as well. So really an an effort to reintroduce Calacera and introduce Lotus as the new owner of Calacera, talk about our operating costs, talk about our time to production and talk about our production profile as well and look and see if we can get some contracts on. Okay, so I'm I'm interested in that conversation, as I'm sure you are. You you talk about in the, in the press release about you know 15 months from final investment decision. So the, the utilities are going to say, well, that that's great. The build period is quick, and then there'll be a ramp up as well. But, but what does it take, or what is left to do to get to final investment decision for you guys in terms? Of, I don't know permits or licenses or any other kind of permissions needed in country in terms of getting money lined up. I mean, when, when does that decision get made? So I think the way that we've put it out in our feasibility study is it is possible for us to make a final investment decision by the end of this year. It is possible. But there are a number of things we need to achieve before then. We need to get our mine development agreements in place with the Malawian government. We're busy negotiating with them. I was in country two weeks ago meeting with the government officials and talking through that. So when we sign our mine development agreement, it sets the fiscal regime in which the project will operate. So we talk there about tax rates, we talk there about duties and tariffs, we talk about royalties and those types of things. So we're negotiating with the government now to be able to come up with an equitable equitable position that both meets our investment requirements, but also benefits the country as well. Right. So that's one area we're focused on. But, but it's, it's kind of, you're the only show in town. So it's, it's all new and version territory in terms of those discussions. So what, what are your expectations? What, what do you need to see out of it? And what do they need to see? I think, I, I, I think we're sitting in quite an important position because even though we are first off the block within Malawi, there are another three or four companies behind us that are looking to develop projects. And I'm sure you'll know what some of them are. I mean, they're out there as well. And anything that we agree to, the expectation that will just roll on to the other people in some in some regards as well. So what we want to try and do, and this is the conversation we've been having with the government, is that when you're looking at it, the government already owns 15% of Calacara. Lotus owns 85%, the government owns 15% of it. So they get a share of the profits or a share of the dividends from that perspective. There's obviously royalties that need to be paid, but can we somehow look at royalties instead of being a fixed number, could we potentially have a look at a royalty that's dependent on the uranium price? 
So when the uranium price is low, our royalties are low. But when the uranium price is high, we'll pay more royalties than that because everyone's benefiting from, from that point in time. We want to look at things like tax rates. We want to look at things like duties and tariffs that we come in there to try and make it as investable as possible for, uh, you know, for, for our shareholders and for anyone else who's coming in as well. Right. Okay. Without getting all Donald Trump in terms of negotiation, it's like you, you, would, you need to be realistic about what that price could be. So what are, what are those sorts of ranges? Because, I mean, if I look back a year, people banging on about $200 uranium, right? And that clearly hasn't happened yet. Or maybe it won't happen at, at, at all. So how, how do they view this? Because again, they're learning. We don't know. So how, how do you go about, you know, putting a, a pin on that? And how do you actually conclude those discussions? Because the sooner that happens, sounds like the sooner you can get on with your final investment decision. Yeah, I think there's a few things. I mean, we certainly don't need $200 per pound to make the project work. I mean, that's I think that's pretty, that's pretty obvious to everyone. 200 pounds would be fantastic, but we're certainly, certainly not looking to that sort of number before we start up there. I mean, a number that has been espoused by many, many developers is $65 per pound. People are looking for $65 per pound because they think that is a value or the price that is needed to bring new uh, projects online again. $65 per pound is a good price for us. We'll be very, very happy with that. And that's sort of like the midpoint for us. You know, 65, maybe 75 is the midpoint. If we get prices higher than that, maybe we may pay some royal, more royalties. If we get prices lower than that, well, we'd like to get our royalties reduced. Right. Okay. So you're saying it could be the end of this year, but the likelihood is that these discussions um, will take some time. Um, is there a time frame that you would like to put out there? Well, as I said, we would like to be in a position to make our final investment decision by the end of the year. And one of the things we need to get done is the MDA. So our expectation is by the end of the year, we should be able to get an MDA in place. And in our discussions with the government of Malawi, they seem to indicate that they don't see that as being a difficult timeline for them to meet as well. So we would certainly think we can get something done done by the end of the year. Um, in that way. Okay. And so you also need money. How, how, how does it work? Do you need those term contracts from the utilities in place? And if so, how many? And if so, for how much to give comfort to the bankers um, in terms of being able to kind of structure, well, however you structure the financing? I think that the utility negotiations around term contracts and the discussions with the banks around debt financing or potentially with investors around equity financing must go in parallel. We need to understand both of the perspectives for us to come up with a reasonable solution in the end. And I mean, it's still a discussion at the moment, how much debt would we want to take on? We know when we have a look at other companies who have recently raised money for restarts, they've gone the 100% equity route. Do we necessarily want to go down that route? I'm not sure. I think we can take on some debt. And if we do take on some debt, as you said, we do need to have some contracts in place. But if we go for a relatively small percentage of debt, say less than 50%, we certainly do not do not need to contract all of our production to be able to meet those debt, debt requirements. And I think I've had the conversation with you previously, Matt, in terms of our contracting strategy. You know, what I would like to see, and again, just trying to pick some numbers to make the math easy, if we could sign contracts at $60 per pound and we have a cash cost of $30 per pound, we may only consider putting half of our production into term contracts then we know that all of our cash costs are covered. And then we can then use the remaining 50% of our production to either go into the spot market or go into short or medium term contracts and try and get some of the upside if the price is going up, up moving forward. So these are the discussions that we're having at the moment. 
And uh, yeah, it'll be really interesting, I think, when we come back from the WNA conference at the end of the month, in terms of what the utilities are thinking about as well. It's an interesting one, whether it goes to whatever the number may be. But if you look, you know, history says, I mean, Paladin went down the same route and that kind of caught them out. So obviously with, uh, with Fukushima, um, they were stuck high and dry um, in, in the spot market. Um, again, are there lessons to be learned from the past? I don't think when the mine was operating previously that there was actually enough in term contracts. Their term contracts did not cover their cash costs, which was one of the issues that they had. I think they put too much into the spot market or plan to put too much in the spot market. I think we need to be at that level where our term contracts ensure we cover our costs. I think that's a really safe position to be in. And then we can play the spot market or we can play the shorter term contracts for the remainder of our production. Right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Looking at share price. Okay, everyone's had that little bump in, in March and April and like you did, and then everyone's kind of come off like you have and been moving sideways, waiting for all of these great catalyst moments of, of split buying up and mopping up all of the uh, mobile inventory or whatever it is that people you know, felt was going to go on in the marketplace. But the reality is, you know, the market is moving at its own pace and, you know, uh, it's when the utilities start to move, that's when the market will start to move. You are at that kind of final stage. You're in the last nine yards, to use an Americanism, where you've you've got you've produced the DFS. You understand what the costs are, and by the way, you know well well done on the costs. Um, you've you've got a final investment decision coming up, and at that point, once you start building, companies like yours in that position tend to get a, a little bump there, no matter what the market's doing, because people's expectation is you're going to get into production. So that's good news. Um, which, 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 you know, which, which, which I want to talk about um, in, in a second. But here's something that you did, which I thought was, it's either brave or stupid. I can't, I can't, I can't work it out. You know, you, you kind of say, right, we are addressing some historical issues here at Calacara. I mean, when I you know, first came across your project, there were conversations going on the fact that, well, geez, the plant is moving downhill. Why would you invest in something like that? And you... You know, you decided to talk about it. Why? Why bring it up now? I mean, I think it's. I, I mean, certainly it's known in the industry. I hear lots of people commenting about it, and uh, we certainly recognised it late in 2019 when we did our due diligence and we spent a long time looking at those issues. I spoke to a number of engineers and geotechnical people that I know, um, explained to them what was going on, and they said, "No, there's an engineering solution for this. We will sort something out." You know, we, we can do this, we can fix it. There's enough information out there and all that kind of stuff. So we have also spent, we spoke about the last 18 months or so focused on our technical things around all sorting, whatever else. But we've also delved into these issues that they've had on the mind and also in, also in a lot of detail. And the guys have come back with uh, solutions in terms of how to solve them. And we've costed those solutions and we've included those costs in the capital costs that we're moving forward with. So I think it is the right time to be talking about these I don't like talking about things when I don't know what the solution is, but now that I know the solution, I know the cost, and I know the impact on it, and I know that's going to de-risk the whole thing moving forward, I'm more than happy to talk about it now in terms of what we're planning on doing. Okay, we'll go, go on then. Plant terrace stability, tailing dam dynamic stability and open pit uh, bench and interim stability. So is the are we stable or I'll not stable? I'll start because, because that's probably the easiest one, and then I'll move on to the tailings and finally on to the plant terrace, because that's probably the slightly more uh, uh, complicated of the three. So I think the first thing to recognize from the pit is when the guys were mining it, 
There was some instability with regard to the number of the benches, a number of the ramps and all that kind of stuff. And really, they went through a large learning process in terms of how to mine the Calacara deposit. And there's a couple of quite simple things, I suppose, in the end that have come out. First of all, you make sure that you're building everything in your Arcos units. So the Calacara deposit itself is a series of bands. You've got Arcos, which is like a sandstone, and then interspersed between each of the Arcos units is the mudstone. So it goes Arcos, mudstone, Arcos, mudstone, the whole way down. And what's happened is when the mudstone gets exposed to the environment and is opened up and water can ingress and all that kind of stuff, becomes a bit of a slip plane. So what happens is the Arcos units then start to move. This is not a sudden movement, it's a slow creep. So what we've done from a mine design perspective is we've made sure that all of our benches are in the Arcos. They don't stop or start in any of the mudstones. We make sure that we build all of our access ramps and all that in the Arcos units so that they're stable, not in the mudstone. We also make sure there's a major fault that goes through the pit. We work either on the left side or the right side of the fault. We don't cross the fault when we're working because we don't want that differentiation there. So we've resolved that. And we've also been conservative in, in our design. We've pushed back the slope of the pit to 22 degrees. So you look at most open pits out there, the guys are talking 44, 45, 48 degrees to try and get their slopes as steep as possible to reduce their strip ratios. We've pushed ours all the way back to ensure stability. So we're sitting at 22 degrees as our average slope on our high wall going backwards. We also make sure that any of the high walls that we do get, we only leave them exposed for six months before we mine them out. So there's no long-term high wall sitting there that could then be weathered and cause issues going through there. So it's really as learnings from what they had in the previous time, getting the geotech guys, getting the mining guys together to come up with a design that actually uh, reduces the risk associated with all these things. So we're very happy with that. And even though we've pushed that angle back on the, uh, on, on the pit, we've still only got a strip ratio of 1.8. So very, very low strip ratio for, for any open cut mine. Of course, we've, we've benefited from the pre-mining that was done. A lot of the overburden has already been pre-stripped and all that kind of stuff, but we still have a, have a strip ratio of 1.8. So really happy with that. You talk about the tailing stamp. So there's quite a bit of false information out there about the tailing stamp. People have asked me questions about discharge of water and all this kind of stuff. That's got nothing to do with the tailing stamp. The tailing stamp has never failed. The tailing stamp has never discharged any water. There was an event that occurred a few years ago where there was some, during a one in 100 year event, where there was a discharge of some water from one of the dams into the environment. A very, very small amount of it resulted in no contamination whatsoever, but that was what everyone was fixated on. We've gone back in now and looked at the tailings dam. We've had the engineers come out to site, taking samples, doing all the measurements. And when you're talking about a tailings dam, you always talk about factors of safety. So you have a factor of safety for your, uh, for your static stability and a factor of safety under dynamic stability conditions. What we've done is we've improved that factor of safety under dynamic conditions. It was always all right under static conditions, but we felt it was too low under a dynamic situation. And that's important because we're sitting in the Rift Valley, which is a very high earthquake area or prone to earthquakes. So we need to make sure that our tailings dams are safe. And we've gone about that in terms of our design and fixing it up. And we're also making sure that we're complying with GISTM, which is the very, very latest set of standards that have come out regarding the safe operation of tailings dams. So we've worked through that process and we will be complying with the GISTM standards before we start the operation up. 
So again, I think we've ticked all the boxes on the tailings dams, and I don't think anyone could find any fault with what we've done on that. The plant terrace one is a real interesting one, I think. Um, as you said, is what's happened is that the plant, the plant itself was actually located on a terrace that was cut into the side of a hill. So they've cut it in the side of a hill and they've filled in the back end of it. And what happened is just after they did that, they identified there was a relic slip that sits underneath the plant. And what happened by doing that cut into the hill, they've upset the balance of forces within the system. So they started some movement occurring there. And then when they started to mine, they started to put uh, waste stockpiles on top of the hill. So they've increased the force on this side even more, which resulted in some more movement. So what the previous uh, owners did is they removed those waste stockpiles to reduce some of the pressure. They also made sure that they put in drainage systems, which were line drainage systems to get the water away. Because the plant area has got the same sort of layout as the pit where you've got these arcos and these mudstone units. So you want to try and stop any water getting into it to cause a slip plane. So they did all of this and they reduced the movement significantly, but we still think there's room for opportunity. So we've identified some further stockpiles that if we remove those, it will help. It'll take the pressure off the system. But the main thing we've decided to do is put in what they call a pile fence. So we'll be drilling some holes down, putting in the structural steel, putting in concrete, and actually locking that terrace in place by locking it in with the bedrock that sits, sits, uh, sits below it. And based on the calculations that the guys have done with us, through some very, very fancy modeling, using some guys over in the U.S., we expect to see a significant reduction in the amount of movement that's occurring on that plant terrace. Okay, okay. Because it, it was always just that thing about the, about the, the, the terrace or the proximity, Lake Malawi, and you know there were, there were lots of reasons that people were throwing at us initially as to why this perhaps didn't stack up. One of the things they did throw at us, which said possibly the reason why it would stack up is because you've inherited this vast infrastructure. So that's kind of kept your... Capex cost down, and, and you, you, you've been talking about um, that, so which, which is good. And we've discussed also the fact that you know most companies are fearful of putting out any kind of economic study at the moment in this inflationary um, in, environment. Just help me understand the things that you looked at, the things that you could affect. You knew what you were inheriting, right? So you knew knew it was a low capex. You told you told me that every time we've spoken, right? But what were the things you had? to look at and th things that you had to fix to ensure that the CapEx figure stayed low, you know, with, within range of what you were forecasting. Um, because I, I want to learn, because I want to see what other companies are, are going to be able to do and not able to do. So, I mean, one of the things we've been fortunate about is that even though everyone is talking about this terrorist movement and all that kind of stuff, the core part of the process, so if you look at the crushers, through the mill, into the leach tanks, through the resin and pulp, the thickness, the precipitation circuit and all that kind of stuff, that is all in a very, very good state. There has been a little bit of disruption to some of the foundations, but, you know, very, very minor and all that kind of stuff. And all the ground movement issues that we've seen have normally been related to the admin building, to the workshops, to the stores and all that kind of stuff. So what we have realized that when we went through and got all of our engineers there, the work we need to do on the main part of the process is really limited to fixing up some corrosion replacement of some of the smaller pieces of equipment, refurbishing some of the motors and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that I was really worried about uh, was the state of the electrical equipment. I was really concerned that the electrical equipment, including the transformers, including the mill motor and all that kind of stuff, may not be in the best condition. 
But the engineers went through there. They opened everything up. The mill motor's in fantastic condition. We've got no issues there whatsoever. So the amount of money we thought we might have to spend on electrical stuff has reduced significantly and helped us save our cost. We have included now a brand new asset plant, which is something that's come up that we weren't expecting to do based on our scoping study work. And that was really based on a detailed investigation where they identified significant corrosion within the asset plant. And also there had been some ground movement there as well. So there was a discussion about relocating the asset plant and the decision was made we'll have to relocate it. It's probably better to put in a brand new asset plant that we can get that's a modular asset plant, the latest designs, latest efficiencies and all that kind of stuff and help us get our costs down. So that's added some costs into it, but we have made savings in other areas that we're really happy with. But I think what's really important is the $50 million that we've spoken about. We have still maintained that $50 million for the refurbishment, but the additional dollars we're spending in upfront capital, so that's the $38 million to get to our 88, is on ore sorting. It's on connecting to the national grid. It's on acid recovery through our nanofiltration plants and all that kind of stuff. And it's also to do with some of our first fills with reagents. Right. So the the energy, I think we talked about that maybe a year ago, what you were trying to do. So where did you end up with that? You connected to the National so Grid now? Yeah. So what we've done is we've come up with a hybrid system. We recognize that in the discussions with ESCOM, which is the Malawian utility, it wouldn't be possible for us to get all of the power that we need for the plant from the grid. There's just not that much power available on the grid. So we had to look for some other solutions. One of them is to retrofit the steam turbine onto the asset plant. So we have a cogen system and all the heat that's generated in the asset plant is used to drive the steam turbine and generate power. So that's one of the things we're having a look at. And we're also looking at some solar and battery as well. And what we've got now is a hybrid system that contains all of those different components. About 40% comes off the gen set. I think it's 20 or 25% comes off solar and a similar amount coming off the um, off the cogen as well. And then it's less than 10% of our power comes from diesel gen sets. Now, when we have a look at that mix, our average power cost has gone down to 10.6 cents per kilowatt hour, which is extremely competitive out there, especially when you consider when the plant was operating previously with diesel gen sets, and even if we make the optimistic assumption of $1.20 for the diesel price, it was still costing them 34 to 36 cents per kilowatt hour. So we have reduced our power cost by over 60%. Yeah, okay, okay. Tell me this, because um, we, you can, you can actually, you know, in the final yards here, to, and we've, you've, we've talked a little bit about how you go and raise the money and the sorts of conversations that are needed, but the one of the aspects which has been very topical for the last 18 months or so is, okay, ESG and you know, greenification and greenwashing, et cetera, and social license and CSG, ESG, you know, the, ah, you know acronyms coming out, coming out of every right. single conversation. And it's, it's like most mining CEOs say to me, look, we've always taken care of that stuff. We've got to be good citizens, Otherwise, you know, because we're gassing the country, otherwise stuff just stops dead. You know, we can't ad advance here. With the conversations with utilities and the conversations with funders, whether it be on the debt or whether it be on, on equity, um, on the institutional side, what exactly are they looking for, for from you? Is it any different than it ever was? Is it a case of don't do anything which is going to cause us to 
damage our uh, return on our, our capital invested in you. We don't do anything which will embarrass our brand. I mean, don't. I mean, what, what's the what's the list of to do and to don't in those conversations? I think in the conversation we talk about the utilities first. I think there is a range of requirements from the various utilities, and I would say that the European utilities are much further up the curve in terms of demanding or wanting to have some ESG stuff. There's no doubt in my mind um, about that. And it'll be interesting when we have this, when I'm in London at the end of the month to get the final inputs from them. But we certainly recognize that the European utilities ask a lot more questions about ESG than some of the other utilities around at the moment. And they want to make sure that we're good corporate citizens. How are we working with our communities is always a very, very important one. What are we doing about employment? What are we doing about diversity? What are we doing about ensuring that we're leaving the environment in a good state? Those types of things. How are we benefiting the communities that we're working in? Are sort of the questions that I'm that, that I'm getting thrown at me when we talk about ESG. And I think Lotus is doing a fantastic job in that area. We're in the process of signing a community development agreement, which will result in about 0.45% of our gross revenue being put into community projects. We're talking about a mine development agreement as well that is supportive not only of the company, but also the country as well. We'll be looking at employing something like 600 Malawian nationals when the mine starts up again. And we know there's a, I mean, that's primary um, employment. We know there's a lot of secondary employment that comes through that as well. So we would expect a tenfold increase in that. So around about 6,000 Malawians will benefit from Kalakira um, coming back up and operating. So I think those are really, really good. From a financing perspective, I think, in my opinion at the moment, what our ESG will allow us to do is to talk to some of the really focused ESG funds that maybe didn't want to talk to us previously or maybe wouldn't be interested in having a conversation unless we were able to show some ESG progress or something like that. So what I think we've been able to do is actually widen the uh, potential uh funders that we can speak to about funding uh, Calacera. But do you think that those conversations are kind of now, because the narrative's changing politically, the narrative's changing economically um, around nuclear and uh, therefore uranium, you're, you're, there are other maybe more generalist funds who may or may not have their own bent on, on ESG are looking at nuclear as a real option and therefore you know so uranium is a real option because it's solving ESG problems much further down the line do you kind of do you guys cut some slack because of that I think the generalist funds I think you're right I think the generalist funds are becoming a lot more interested in, in, in uranium now maybe a year or two ago it was only the uranium specialist funds that were maybe interested in having a conversation with you but I'm certainly getting approached by a lot more generalist funds that are happy to start including uranium in their portfolio and uranium developers in their portfolio. So I've seen this, as I said, it's a broadening of the opportunities or the options available to us for financing the project. Right, okay. And my one final one before we go um, is, um, you, you mentioned that obviously you are, you know, there are thereabouts in terms of uh, Australian, African um, uranium uh, producers, uh, sorry, developers in terms of the potential production uh, size, you know, 2.4 million pounds in your case, and obviously meaningfully bigger than some of the North American um, stories um, that are near-term producers. Um, so, so, that, so, that, so that's that's kind of um, 
you know, puts it puts you in a in a quite a nice position. But do you think that the the proximity to production is going to help your conversations with utilities? Because are we, we are always talk about African um, plays, Malawi obviously being one, um, being the next cab off the rank, and you know utilities need that need obviously need the certainty, etc., and they need the kind of scale um, that. You know, some of the African plays can can bring, but I think the proximity to being able to get into production is helping with those discussions because you know we're not we're not seeing the sort of support from Kazatom Prom that perhaps um, people expect in terms of increased production, etc. So hey, how nervous are the utilities now? I'm trying to get a sense of timing, basically. Yeah, I think the timing is absolutely critical. I think that's one of the one of the things we always get asked about is when are you guys going to be able to produce? How long is it going to take you to ramp up to get your production? When are we likely to, first, to see first product? And I'm hoping that the feasibility study has provided some certainty about what the potential is for us to be able to get up or the time frame associated with us getting up and running. So that's really, really important. I mean, the utilities in general are relatively low risk or looking for low risk. They want certainty around production rates. They want some certainty around cost to make sure you're going to keep operating. And they want some certainty around uh, delivery times as well. So the feasibility study, as we've spoken about before, in itself is an important document. But I think what it does is it gives us the information and the certainty or the, you know, the confidence about where we are in the process and how soon we are to, um, to making that final investment decision and pushing the button to start uh, production.